Welcome to the EverSaline podcast, the show that ignites your passion for leadership and empowers you to develop a culture of continuous improvement. I'm your host, Matt Sims, and in each episode, we bring you fascinating insights and invaluable tips from our incredible lineup of guests. What do they all have in common? They share an unwavering dedication to excellence and are the experts in driving engagement, improving metrics, and reducing costs. The Ever So Lean Podcast with Matt Sims. You know it makes sense. This episode is sponsored by Catalyst Consulting Limited. Catalyst Consulting exists to help people and organisations work better today and be ready for tomorrow. They have a rich history of igniting business transformation using business agility, lean, Six Sigma, strategy deployment, agile and change management. They can help you and your organisation to develop the skills necessary to work and manage differently. To find out more, check out catalystconsulting.co.uk. Today, we're diving deep into the world of how to identify and prioritize loss. And we've got a true industry titan joining us to do this because I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce Pankaj Sharma, Managing Director at Wild Clipper Corporation, all the way from the stunningly beautiful country of Vietnam. Pankaj's impressive resume includes continuous improvement roles across the globe from India to Europe, China and even Russia. He's an expert in waste identification methods and he's worked with diverse cultures, making him the perfect guide to help us navigate the complexities of this challenge. Throughout his illustrious career, Pankaj has been at the forefront of world-class manufacturing, leading the cost deployment pillar. With this structured approach, he's helped identify and quantify the cost of waste in the production processes, prioritising opportunities for improvement based on their potential impact on cost reduction and ease of implementation. And here's where it gets really exciting. By understanding how to identify waste, we can start to eliminate the eight wastes, which are non-value-added activities or processes within a system, process or organisation. These wastes are often referred to as Tim Woods or downtime, acronyms of defects, overproduction, waiting, non-utilised talent, transportation, inventory motion and extra processing. Now, all this sounds great, but how do you actually identify these wastes? And once you've done that, how do you prioritise which ones to deal with first? Well, with Pankaj by our side today, we're going to learn the best practices for doing just that. And with his guidance, we'll learn how to prioritise opportunities for improvement based on their potential impact on cost reduction and ease of implementation. Pankaj, welcome to the Everseline podcast. Thank you, Matt. Thanks a lot. With this great introduction, it seems I need to review my resume again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone always says I'm that. missing some, <laughs> some, some. I've written it for you. I've written it. I'll send it over in a minute. <laughs> it's brilliant. Do you know what? Sometimes, though, we don't realize how much we've done and, and how great we are. We're all as human beings, we're really, really good at pointing out the negative things and the things that we don't do so well. But very rarely do we sit there and go, I'm good at this, or I do that well. <laughs> but you do this well. Well done. <laughs> I, should really, I should really go back and see, was that all really I did? <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I've got the wrong person. <laughs> so tell us about your amazing career then, because of you have been, I think it's easier to say the places that you haven't worked rather than the places that you have. No, it's, uh, I would say, like we mentioned before, I think I'm still a work in progress. <laughs> I'm coming from a completely core manufacturing background. So you can assume me as a person, as a core shop floor person. So, you know, coming from the factory shop floor, somebody who is um, passionate about continuous improvement in manufacturing and I think it, it goes in sync with people development so that's my passion I would say continuous improvement with people development I, I really feel lucky to have experienced and witnessed you know whatever may be the level of automation in any manufacturing unit I think the power and commitment of an engaged employee you know it can do unimaginable wonders for the business I have seen that and I'll share some of my uh, insights onto that uh, since coming from the shop floor, I think I'll try to share the perspective of lean from the point of view of a production manager, a maintenance manager, a logistics manager, a supply chain manager. So how the how the people on the shop floor, the leaders on the shop floor, supervisors on the shop floor, how they really perceive lean, how they feel sometimes threatened from lean, and how they feel that lean can or cannot help them, you know, to reduce the complexity of their job, to make it simple, and to really help them achieve their targets. 
I still remember one of the sayings from my very first mentor about two decades ago. He said that business is 90% people. And I, I think it still goes completely correct and very, very much uh, verified and validated almost every day. So it's, I really feel very fortunate to, have, to be able to work in unstable manufacturing environments. So what I mean is that I, I really worked in a factory that was going smooth. <laughs> so it's been uh, greenfield projects or brownfield projects or capacity expansion projects, sometimes capacity expansion projects during and just after the greenfield. So it, it's been a very interesting career for me. When I look back, I think the only common thing that that existed between all those various projects, assignments across the world was a team with a customer-focused growth mindset. I really got many opportunities, like you, you just cited some of them, to work in all functions of manufacturing, you know, in a, in a factory through short-term or long-term assignments, uh, sometimes in multinational, multicultural and multilingual environments as well, through in different locations of part of the world. It really helped me to understand, you know, how different functions in the same factory, in the same manufacturing environment, how much they are similar and how much they are unique in their working and how much they are correlated and what kind of, let's say, what level of minimum collaboration is needed to keep the things moving forward. I, I did have some experience working with different set of tools from environment of world-class manufacturing, Six Sigma, TPM, TQM, ISO standards, and I feel that you know, whatever may be the approach towards problem solving, in my experience, I think 5S and people development is the starting point and it will be the companion throughout the whole lean journey, you know, because I feel that, you know, lean implementation is an approach which is, you know, where failures are collected and they are molded as steps towards success. In all this journey, whatever tool set we use, I think people development and 5S, they're integral part of it. There is something that we always keep a check. I also kept check while, while implementing lean and various problem solving activities is the fear of failure, promoting an environment which is blame free. You know, these are something like very, very important when we are implementing that. And I have, I, I feel blessed to have worked with mentors and supervisors who provided me an environment where I could take risk. You know, I could experiment without fear of failure and their advices and criticisms really helped me hard. You know, towards working, you know, improving, improving my technical and managerial skills. Yeah. So I, I really had some opportunities, you know, to, to do many projects in P&L improvement, cost reductions, capacity increases, sometimes new product introductions. I still feel that the power of people during the COVID lockdown was unimaginable. The kind of experience that I gained during the COVID lockdown, I really cannot compare it to others. Personally, I felt how blessed I am. I am to have such a wonderful team at Wall Vietnam and also extraordinary 24-7 support that we got from our headquarters in U.S. You know, that our local team, they sailed through all the supply chain challenges, managed the continuity in production with a customer-focused mindset. So this is something that is really, it was mind-blowing what a team together can achieve if they're aligned. If the team is aligned, problem solving is just a game. Yeah, it's, it, you know what? You, you, you've hit so many chords there because of throughout this this series on this podcast, the common theme that we've picked up from all the guests is around people, that people think lean is about process and it's about standards. And, and it is about process and about standards, but it's about people. Fundamentally, it's about people because you haven't got the people on your side. If they don't understand, if they're not part of the process, it doesn't work. One thing I'm really interested to understand with your breadth of experience across Europe, across the world, really, how have you found implementing continuous improvement in different countries? Do you find that different countries take slightly different approaches based on their cultures? Does it vary? I would rather mention, instead of lean implementation, I would mention it problem solving. And when I see the approach towards problem solving across the locations or cultures, languages, I, I think three things I, can, I could see everywhere. The first is, if a location, if the management, if the top leadership is clear about the purpose of problem solving, then I would say process of problem solving and the people who are problem solving. These three things are clear. I don't think problem solving is different from location to location. Of course, the solutions can be different. Let me give an example. When I'm working in Italy, and we have a target to reduce the cost for direct labor, for example. 
I would say investing in a robot, a hundred thousand dollar, could give me a very good benefit in one or two years, depending upon where I am working in Europe. But when I come to Vietnam or any Asia Pacific country, I really need to think twice before really think about investing a robot here, because the the cost benefits are not that impressive compared to Europe. So we need to think about low-cost automations or something more creative that can give us those targets. So the problem is clear: direct labor efficiency. The purpose is clear. The process is clear. How we are going to achieve that? We'll go through the the standard 3M process of Mori Mura Muda analysis. Then, of course, the solution might be different based on the location, based on the budgets, based on different kind of constraints. Yes, definitely. When we are talking about people. Because mindset plays, I would say, 80% of the role in problem solving of the team of the people. So it's always very important about which team you are choosing towards a problem solving. And also, I think some of the initial failures that I had, I learned from that because I understood that when we are going to launch a problem solving exercise, it cannot be launched on everything and everywhere with everyone. We really need to go to kind of a pilot area, kind of a model area, choose a model team, develop them. visualize the solution so that we can attract more people and improve the mindset so the team selection of the model area the team selection of the pilot area is really i would say the core activity that can help now if i'm choosing a team in europe or in russia or in china or in vietnam i think the process is the same we are going to choose the best possible skill set available see the gap analysis develop the people close the gap and let's start working using the tools available more or less the process remains the same for problem solving is just the some constraints depending upon the location where we are so we have to customize there is not always a single solution to all the problems so we have to customize based on the location the constraints the budgets etc your point about low cost automation as well in many moons ago in one of my first continuous improvement roles low cost automation we used to do what we called cardboard engineering <laughs> so you would solve things with cardboard right. because it was free and gravity fed rollers as well that used to start at a certain height and run down naturally so it was all low cost but it used to take the burden off the people fantastic way of doing stuff when we really started when we started to use that uh, about i think 2010 11 we used to call them legos <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> you could you could cut it, fit it anywhere, change it any any structure. Yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> <So> it. <laughs> it's really good. People get very creative with stuff like that as well. You get all sorts exactly. of solutions made. It's brilliant. Right, so let's get into this subject then. So, how to identify loss. So, loss analysis. What does that look like? How would you you describe that? I think before jumping into loss analysis, it is very much important to understand the reason why we need to do that. so we we all know that you know every company wants to remain competitive in the market everybody wants to build a system based on continuous learning and continuous improvement but the important thing is that such an such an improvement system it must be connected to the dna you know becoming part of the natural way of working then only we can start any exercise for problem solving loss analysis and counter measures and it's also very important that uh, it's it's a way of working from the top management to each shop floor employee i think it should be considered as the only way of working then only we can talk about loss analysis loss identification because if we see that okay attacking the losses through a particular set of tools or through a particular approach it's just another way of working in my experience it did not work so we have to consider it as the only way of working so we can really work towards it in a very focused manner also we we should understand i think it cannot be driven only by goodwill and personal experience of few good managers so it has to travel throughout the organization with the same language and the same spirit so if we are talking about loss analysis everybody should be talking about it in the same language throughout the organization from top to bottom i think that's that's kind of a prerequisite when we are talking about loss identification or loss analysis so if we have this like basic structure ready for loss analysis i think it's like i mentioned to you i'm coming from a shop floor so from a perspective of a production manager or perspective of a maintenance manager or supply chain manager sometimes they get confused or i used to get confused between losses and costs when we are talking to the shop floor people it's not very easy for them to identify a loss directly into us dollars or euros or pounds selling effect so whenever we are talking about identification of loss my suggestion is that we need to identify the kpi of that loss for example we have to identify some physical unit it can be hours can be material it can be kilowatt hour can be something like that but we cannot call it give me a loss in dollars 
because the people on the shop floor can identify, record the KPI in physical units, then we can use financial calculations to convert that to a cost. That must be clear. So before we are we are talking about loss identification, I think we should be clear which KPI we are talking about. Once that is done, it's very important that, as I mentioned, it has to travel throughout the organization. So, for example, now we have identified a KPI and we have to give a standard value to that. Sometimes on the shop floor, we do not have a standard for everything. Then what to do? Should we continue to record something without a standard? We can use our actual values, historical values, benchmark values, just to set a standard, the current best standard. And we start to identify that KPI of a law, compare it versus the standard. For example, it could be equipment downtime in minutes or hours or setup losses in minutes or hours, man hour per piece, like pieces per man hour, productivity, energy, kilowatt hour per piece. So we start to have that KPI measurement of the loss versus a standard. Because I think I, I very much believe is there is no standard, there is no Kaizen. So we have to identify something versus a standard. Once we have it, well, then we start to analyze the variance of the KPI versus the standard, and we try and make it more visual for easy understanding. Again, for people like me who are on the shop floor, the environment is changing very fast. You know, the products are moving. The cycle times are in few seconds. We cannot expect the people there to start analyzing everything in numbers. They have to see it visually. There is not much time of it. They have to see it visually, how the trend is going up or down versus the standard, how much variance up or down. Once we visualize it, I think the next step should be we develop a routine. It's very important. For example, we can have kind of a daily management system, kind of a weekly management system or monthly management, but there has to be a routine. You know, we, we discuss the status, how to improve the data recording. Ask questions, very important. Ask questions to improve the understanding of the team about what is a loss and what is not. Why is important? Because let's assume I'm a production manager and I'm recording a loss. I may miss something which is actually a loss. But if I take the perspective of a customer, I may have more recordings, you know, more data about what is a loss. In my experience, when we started to record losses, be it losses on machines or manpower or material, energy, services, when we are talking about it is a loss or not, we have to take the customer perspective. Is the customer really ready to pay for that? If not, we take it as a loss. And when we change that perspective, you believe me that the percentage of losses identified, it jumped from 10% to 50% of the cost. Wow. You could see, wow, we are making so much loss. But when I'm looking at losses like a production manager, it looks very normal. I have to do it. This is needed. This is like oxygen to me. But no, when I look at it as a customer, I think, no, it's a loss. Be it attackable now or I attack it in future, it doesn't matter. I, I can plan it later, but it is a loss. So once that clarity comes, and how that clarity comes is by asking questions in, in the daily routine. You know, It does not come in training. You can train, have a customer uh, perspective. What does, what does that mean? When I have a cycle time of one or two seconds or three seconds on shop floors, I have to take the production perspective. So it, it comes by practice. You know, It comes yeah. to a practice. How the practice is, ask questions. That's why, I mean, as I mentioned, the best we could have, we could achieve in one of my team exercises where the cost deployment pillar was maximum, we achieved to 50% of the cost was lost. That's amazing. We were really jumping on the stairs. Wow, what's going on? Yeah. And of course, we started actions on that. And then we identify action plans. We identify responsibilities, accountabilities. And another very, very important thing on loss identification is follow-up because we follow up to train the eyes of the people again to distinguish a loss from a cost. It is very important for people to understand what is the difference between a loss and a cost. And the last thing I would say is once we have the action plans done, we, we start to see some improvements. We start to see standardizations. I think this is the time when we start to challenge the standard. You remember, we set the standards sometimes based on assumptions, on benchmarks, on historical value. Now is the time we challenge the standard. We, re we redefine our perimeter. We start to challenge our assumptions and we set a new perimeter for a, for a new standard definition and we start all the exercise again. That means identify the KPIs, start the variance analysis, visualization, routine, daily management system, action plans, follow-up, talking, questions, all that. We start again. So I think that's something I would say a kind of a routine in loss identification and loss visualization. Just coming back to one topic I touched briefly was the difference between a loss and a cost. Like we were discussing previously, not all the cost is a loss. What I see or what I perceive is like if, if I have a cost, inside cost, there are always two components. One we can call a value added component, one we call as a loss. 
of course, nobody would like to attack value-added component on priority. We should not be. So we are always talking about a loss. So it should be clear for the people who are recording the loss or identifying the loss to understand what is a value-added component and what is a loss. Because ultimately, that loss will become our priority to attack. And all the action plan and all that music will go around those losses. So this can be, I would say, uh, a summary of how I have been working on the shop floor when we talk about identifying losses in manufacturing. And, and you could take as a summary, like, it again, I have talked about a lot about people's perspective. So it's very much linked to people development. Yeah. It's very much linked to each other. You, you mentioned people development and you mentioned the cost deployment pillar. So for those listening that never heard these terms before, they're world-class manufacturing terms. Do you want to just explain briefly what the cost deployment pillar was and, and is and where it plays its role within that structure? Oh, sure. Well, about cost deployment pillar, it's, it's a pillar in, in world-class manufacturing. And I had the opportunity and uh, I feel fortunate to have led this pillar for about five years in one of my previous assignments. What I feel best about it, about cost deployment, is like in the traditional systems of industrial accounting, they have some weak spots from manufacturing point of view, you know, because it's not very clear the link between, a direct link between the improvement activities and the related benefits in terms of cost cutting. Sometimes it's very unclear. You know, many times I, I'm sure that all the production managers or uh, other shop floor leaders, when they are asked from the finance people, how, how did they get this saving? What are the projects behind? Can you tell me one by one and link it? We always face that challenge, especially the people on the shop floor, because we don't find that link, direct link between cost reduction activities and the cost reduction achieved and the improvement activities. So here comes this magical pillar of cost deployment. It's a systematic method that gives definition of a cost-cutting program through the cooperation between manufacturing and finance. And the aim of this pillar, or the aim of cost deployment, is basically to implement an effective improvement plan that challenges the maximum energy and you know the, uses the proper methodologies, proper approaches, proper tool set in the best way so that we can attack the source losses. What I mean by source losses, you can call them as mother losses, you can call them as causal losses. You know, So the people, when they're recording losses, they need to understand. For example, if I'm talking about a loss in a machine, can be a breakdown loss. So if that breakdown loss, I take it as a source loss. It, it, that means it's a source of multiple other losses. It may create, for example, a breakdown on a machine, may create a loss of indirect labor, may create a loss of direct labor, may create a loss of setup loss, may create a loss of spare parts consumption, may create a loss of idle energy consumption. We have to very clearly understand what is the source loss so that we can attack the source loss to have the maximum impact instead of attacking resultant losses. If we don't solve the source, resultant losses attacking will not give us much of the benefit. So cost deployment pillar, it's a very systematic pillar that helps us to do that in, in a very systematic way of matrices. You know, I, I come from a world-class manufacturing background as well, as, as we've discussed before. And when you talk about matrices and, and uh, the cost deployment process, it just takes me back to that time of sitting down before an audit, trying to work out what our F matrix was going to be. And ah, <laughs> tell us a little bit about the matrices. <laughs> you know, in cost deployment, we have a structured approach that starts. The first step is the identification of the source losses. It's very important. And as I mentioned to you earlier, normally when we talk about the shop floor people, we never have all the data at one time. We have heard from TPM in the past 16 losses, six stop losses, 16 losses. We, we know all those losses related to machines or manpower or material, energy, services, logistics, supply chain, a list of losses. And we never have all the data at one time. So what to do? Should we wait until we collect all the data or start? you know, with whatever we have. I think the approaches that we have used in the past is that the first thing we do is we need to do identification of the source losses. And we will do it first in a qualitative way. Qualitative way is, of course, like data is important, is very important. But if you don't have, then gut feeling is your, is your best friend. Your experience is your best friend. Talking to operators, supervisor, team leaders, line leaders on the shop floor, they are the people who can tell you, ah, this loss is no impact, there's low impact, there's minimum impact, there's medium impact, or high impact. Just, just get that information. That instead, we wait for a long time to collect a reliable data source. Sometimes we have data and we must have data. Let's use that data. When we don't have, let's work with a qualitative analysis. 
once we have that qualitative part and we take some time later to get the data and we verify that qualitative are we how good we know the shock flow how good we know our process how good we know our losses so it's a kind of a calibration of our self calibration we are doing ourselves from moving from a qualitative approach to a quantitative approach so once we put those numbers there like how many hours of breakdown how many hours of setup losses how many hours of non value added activities how many hours of adjustment losses how many hours of power losses when we have all this data here we start an exercise of valorization you know we convert it to us dollars we convert it to euros we convert it to pounds sterling and then we are going to generate a pareto so that we can know okay in my factory which are the top losses i should attack which are the top processes i should be aware of and then once those top losses are perceived after the pareto analysis we can have a selection of methodology for elimination of those losses we can choose the proper tool to eliminate those losses because you know sometimes the losses that we have are 50 60 losses a kind of a matrix that is impossible to even print on a0 and see it clearly sometimes <laughs> that's the size of the matrix if you remember yes so we have to we have to really think about prioritization you know how to prioritize sometimes we we can prioritize based on impact of the loss based on the cost of the solution based on the effectiveness or the easiness of the solution so for example if if the, if i find a solution or if that is attacking a loss with a high impact the cost of the solution is low and the easiness of the solution is very high let's do it now so that's how we can prioritize so after this prioritization now you know that which are the top losses we are going to attack how we are going to attack we know the methodology and now we start to estimate our target now once we set the target now we launch the projects we set up a follow up timeline can be weekly can can be monthly can be quarterly depending upon the project in technical words we call matrix a b c d e f but the the logic is this identify the issues identify the losses quantify them prioritize them choose the technical tool set to attack it set a target and go ahead so that that's what is in simple words <laughs> five minute definition of cost deployment Are you ready to elevate your team's ways of working? Are you seeking fresh insights and growth opportunities? Our experts will assess your team's practices, providing valuable insights for improvement and celebration. Reward and recognize your team with this certification tailored specifically for creating an improvement culture. The BQF Academy accreditation acknowledges your journey, outstanding outcomes and future plans. Whether you utilize lean, six sigma project management or continuous improvement techniques, this certification celebrates your incredible work and positive impact. Prepare your team's performance to new heights with the BQF Team Excellence Culture Certification. Visit www.bqf.org.uk today and let's celebrate your success together. 13-time Shingo Prize winner Dr. Jeffrey Liker and Toyota Kata author Mike Rother have created the Improvement Kata and Coaching Kata online course. This inexpensive compact program is designed to transform your thinking and approach, making you a highly skilled learner and coach. Engage in deliberate practice to turbocharge your progress. You also get lifetime access to the materials including all of the bonus interviews. Why pay up to 10 times the price elsewhere listening to some consultant when you can gain direct insights from the masters themselves. Skip the rest and go with the best. Join us today and embark on your journey to excellence. Just click on the link below to start your journey. You make it sound so easy, Pankaj. You make it sound like it just takes a couple of minutes. <laughs> it's a beast, but it's a really good methodology for understanding the losses Absolutely. in your operation. It's it's really good, and the visualization of the matrices is great as well. So, if you're interested in the uh, cost deployment pillar and how these matrices work, just Google it, and you'll see loads of stuff on there. It's really it's that. super interesting. I always found that the the folk that led the cost deployment pillar were always the smartest people in the building. So there's a compliment in there for you somewhere. You know the the <laughs> the bottom line for all cost deployment pillar leaders, all the people involved in cost deployment exercises, that we should not wait for all the data to be ready. You know, 60% now is better than 100% never. 
you know, we have to start quick and dirty. We will refine it over the process, no problem. But perfect conditions never exist, you know. Perfect data never exists. Spot on. Um, and just one thing I just wanted to clarify for folk listening. You spoke about the uh, the waste and the, and the non-value-added activities. You've you got your, your non-value, you've got your semi-value, and you've got your value-added. Do you want to just describe briefly what those three different categories are for people that have never heard them before? Value-added activities is, let's say, in simple words, I would say something for what the customer is ready to pay. A non-value-added activity is sometimes the customer is not ready to pay. For example, we cannot charge a customer because I have to walk and take this product from here to there. I have to walk 10 steps, so I need maybe 10 cents more on this product. No, they don't care. They should not care. <laughs> so if something customer is not ready to pay, we take it as non-value-add. Now we have a semi-value-add. Semi-value-add, I would say it's a very subjective definition. Depends on location. Depends on how much we can absorb, how much we can attack. For example, on, a, on an assembly workstation, we are picking a screw and screwing it in, in the product. You know, that pick could be non-value-add. When we place it on the product, it, we may need to turn it a little bit right or left, something like that. Any, any small movement there. Picking, we can call it as non-value-add, but when we put it on the product, we can call it non-value-add or semi-value-add depending upon are we going to attack it now or not. In future, I would say when our non-value-add starts to reduce, it's a good idea that we can start to think about converting those semi-value-add to non-value-add. We could always find an opportunity where, I'm saying an opportunity from the point of view of a cost-of-benefit analysis. So somebody could come out with, a, with an automated screwdriver to pick, to turn, to insert and screw it. If that can solve all the problems, perfect. We can take it completely as a non-value-add, attack it now. Sometimes we take it as a non-value-add and we can only attack a part of it. We cannot attack the rotation of the screw manually. Then the rotation of the screw manually could be taken as a semi-value-add, while the picking and screwing, it can be taken as non-value-add and we can use it as, an, for example, with an automated screwdriver, we can use it and solve it. You're right. It's very subjective, the semi-value-add. And the way I always used to think of it is semi-value-add is something that you need to do at the current time to enable the value-added part. Exactly. And then once you've got rid of the non-value-add and you're left with just you know a big chunk of semi, that becomes non-value. Because if you can automate that or remove it, then your value-added increases, doesn't it? That was one of my favorite parts of analysis was was working that out. We used to have some really cool... Since you, you, you have been heading a WO pillar, probably. I did, yes, exactly. Exactly. I used to, that's exactly what I used to be, the WO pillar lead. Um, and it was the really exciting pillar to be involved in because it was the one that you could physically see change in quite quickly. And it was responsible for, for looking at the waste due to people moving or bending and, and stuff like that. We used to look at the three M's, the Miri Mirror and the Muda. And, the, and we said these really back in the day, this was before you had chat GPT and all these cool tools out there. This was where we used to have spreadsheets. You used to have to go in and create all of the non-value added activity and used to create the pie charts exactly. and stuff like that it was brilliant yamazumis and all that yes stuff. yeah do you know yamazumi is a really cool tool and i know we're going a little bit off piece here but yamazumi is about balancing the workload across the different people or different process paths and we used to do it with post-it notes and we would measure the post-it notes every centimeter would be a minute or something like that of work activity and then cut the post-it notes up but then you could physically move them around like a puzzle to try and make it all even and it was such a cool task to do with the shop floor people because like you spoke about before about visualization, they could actually see what you're talking about rather than sitting there on a spreadsheet and going, well, you're taking this time and you're taking that time. They could move things around and balance it themselves. Really good way of doing it. Really like that. Very effective as well. I mean, and th this is one of the exercises, you know, that kind of visualization tools like you are mentioning. This is a very useful tool for people development pillar to attract people. Once people start, something new is happening. Huh? Something is like kind of, as I mentioned, yeah. if you're clear about purpose, process, and people, now the things yeah. seem like a game. It is. It's, it's a good visualization going on. People, yeah. It becomes fun. You've got to make it fun for people. If you, if you make it boring, people just switch off. And, and like you say, it's got to be the way we do things. Everybody needs to be bought in, and it's not something on top of the day job. This is how we do things. Exactly. If you don't do that, it doesn't work. Let's move on to attacking losses and not costs. So you've touched on this before. Um, you gave a really good definition of the two. 
I think it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of attacking cost over loss because it's so easy to slip into that that trap and it's not the same thing and it's a common mistake that people people make. So what best practices would you offer for, for measuring the progress when you're doing this and making sure that you don't slip into that habit? From my experience, if we, when we are on a, on a focus towards measuring progress, I think it's very important because we are now living in an environment which is full of ambiguity, especially after the COVID situation. Supply chain is in a kind of a mess, let me say. Maybe we started a project with some targets established. And when we are measuring the progress, I think it's very important that we verify the targets of the project over a period of time. So whatever the targets we set, are they still valid today in the current scenario? Because the situation is changing so fast. So we cannot close eyes when the target setting done only in the beginning and we never validate it again. That I think this is something that we should keep in mind when we are measuring the progress and when we are looking actual versus target. The second thing I would say, whenever we are measuring the progress, it's very important to identify the primary and the secondary metrics. What I mean is that with an example, let's say I have a primary metric of a project which is to for a productivity improvement, let's say pieces per man hour. I can improve productivity by various ways, but I suggest to keep a secondary metric there, maybe a first-pass yield, or maybe crap percentage, or maybe rework percentage, to avoid any situation that we just focus on one KPI to improve, but we lose track of the other important KPI, which is linked with them. So I would say major progress of primary and the secondary metric together. We may not have a met secondary metric always, but it's always good to think about if there is any other metric that's going to be affected by this project working on primary metrics. And along with KPI metrics, I always suggest that we should keep an eye on work in progress and work in process. These two look very similar, but I think they are quite different metrics. So work in progress, what I mean is the total amount of work that the team has committed to do, but has not completed at a specific moment. I would call it work in progress. So we have to keep in mind during the measuring progress, we have to keep in mind and very clear how much was the total amount of work or how much were the total activities of small projects that the team work has committed but hasn't completed yet. And the second is work in process means all the tasks that the team is actively working at a specific moment. What are the work currently in process? I think tracking the items that are started but not finished, it can help the team to understand you know, whether they need to increase the speed or they need to reduce the speed by focusing on completion of the existing work before taking new tasks. So we have to adjust our speeds in this follow-up process. So what in the cost deployment we call the metrics F. So we have to adjust our speeds according to that. What happens if you're you're working on a project, the, the matrices have identified the loss, you've got all the way down to your F matrix where you've now got your defined project, you are working on that project, you've been doing it for six weeks or so, but it's not delivering the benefit that you perceived it would in your matrices. What happens? What do you do then? It's a real life situation. Not all projects succeed. So that's, that's my experience. So what if a project doesn't deliver the expectations? So we have set some expectations on monthly, quarterly or annual basis, and it's not delivering it. I would say in my experience, I have failed a number of times and I can really make a SOP step by step <laughs> what to do if you fail <laughs> so I really i'm not joking i mean it's, i have failed many so many times on the shop floor if i could just summarize what i usually do as as a generic approach of course it will depend project to project step one should be don't remain in denial we have to speak up the moment you we suspect that a project is veering off course or even it means you know sometimes admitting that i am at fault and we also at the moment the first thing we need to do is to be avoid the temptation to blame others. You know, the, the best approach is the collaborative approach to move forward. And all, all we can do is to keep our working relationships positive. Step two, get the team together. Deem the project present moment. Do not overthink. You know, it creates unnecessary stress, lack of focus in the team, which further diminishes the chances of success in future. Step three, I would say, ask lots of questions. Ask as many people as possible for their inputs and document the findings. Why we did not do that? What happened wrong? What went wrong? After we after we have all the information, I would say step four should be, you know, we hold a meeting to decide the ultimate fate of this project. 
and the meeting should be attended by sometimes depending on the project by the senior management line management team leaders clients and maybe all other people who have a, who have a stake in this you know in the in the outcome of the project and arrive at the meeting armed with all this information you know why the project is failing and potential alternatives that we could do to meet the business objectives we have we have invested a lot in the lot of resources in the project which may not be redeemable as i mentioned to you earlier when we are measuring the progress it is very important to understand the target we set are they still valid or not again we ask this question again you know does the project align with the broader business goals at this moment or not is it starting to impact other or more important work or not is there some way that we can salvage the part of the project for the future use or not mm-hmm. once these questions are asked i think we are very clear whether to stop this project now or we continue change direction continue and before we leave the meeting i think it's very important that we have a consensus yeah so that is step 4 and i would say step 5 will be if like everyone agrees to reorganize the project rather than terminate it so i think the next step is to decide who will be responsible to put the new action plan in action Uh, it's it's normal it's very normal for a team to feel dispirited when a project shows signs of failure mm-hmm. so as a project leader or as the leader of the organization i think it's very important as as part of my job is you know to boost their engagement and you know maintain that cohesion in the team is very important we could also do some kind of a like one of the activities that i i used to do in one of the projects was a kind some kind of a morale boosting activities such as you know we can have a daily session in which the members of the team they share what they have achieved you know it really helps them to to feel more motivated rather than what they have not achieved so so these kind of social activities you know strengthen the relationship so that's step 5 let us say the step 6 would be now the stage is set for the new approach but important for the project leader is stay vigilant you know <laughs> the last thing you want to is to put together a strong rescue plan again but you're right because it's down to the the senior leaders to create that safe environment where it's okay to fail because you could be the the absolute mac daddy of continuous improvement you could be the best you could be the sensei of the world but you're not going to get it right every time you've got to learn you've got to go through those those failures and and that learning cycle and exactly. and your people learn from doing that as well exactly. I, i mean you as we said before you and i have both come from this this world class manufacturing background and it's, it was so good talking to you before the podcast about the things that we had experienced and we both had the same sensei and the way that the model used to work is this sensei would come to your building and you would do what you called an audit so all of the different pillar leads would all get up and present a presentation on the activity they've done over the last 3 months and the uh, the sensei used to sit at the front with the managing director of the company and he used to get his little red dot out laser pen out and point it at the screen and you used to watch the i was always on after lunch and i used to watch all the other pillar leads get up and get hammered for for the way they had gone wrong and you sit there and think oh no is it, am i going to get hammered like that as well and everyone would squirm and it was just like it, that experience was just then you you can request hr to have a heavy lunch for the sensei <laughs> yeah exactly it's so funny and everyone's running around behind the scenes going oh he, he, and you're trying to change your presentation because he pulled cost deployment up on some logic so you're cr- trying to change your presentation later on so that it doesn't have the same mistake it's, exactly. it's so funny exactly. We have some fun pankar should we play the yes no game okay this is this the challenge here right what do you want me to do well this what you can't do that's the question so i'm going to fire you some random questions over 60 seconds and you can say anything you want but you can't answer yes or no so you cannot say the words yes or no sounds really easy but it's actually really challenging Uh, especially when the music's playing and there's a bit of pressure going on in the background. I already mentioned to you I have failed many times so no problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'll go back and do it again. <laughs> and the best thing is because this isn't live, people listening will never know how many attempts this took you. We could have been done this 50 times. They won't know, will they? <laughs> right, so the next thing you're going to hear is some music and then I'm just going to fire the questions. If you hear the gong and game over, it means you said yes or no. Okay. See, good start. Good start. You didn't say yes or no. I really like it. That's really good. Right, Pankaj, do not say yes or no. What is your favorite type of exercise? Sleeping. Sometimes. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> Have you ever gone on a long hike? Sometimes. <laughs> Who is your role model? Myself. 
Why is that? I, I compare myself to my standards. I believe in improving myself against myself. <laughs> Who is your favourite um, celebrity? It's a Bollywood one, Shahrukh Khan. <laughs> you sure? Sometimes. <laughs> Do you like to dance? <laughs> it depends. What's your favourite dance? Your repeat, please. What's your favorite dance? Any Indian dance with my friend. Oh. Hit the wrong button. I hit the wrong button. You didn't fail. You did it, Pankaj. You lasted the full 60 seconds. <laughs> that was impressive. Even though I hit the, the game over button by mistake at the end there, it, that you wasn't. You didn't lose. You did it. That's what? impressive stuff. You see, that, that's the experience of failure. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, that was really good. I mentioned to you in the very beginning that lean is a collaboration of failures converted to steps. Yes. To a success. <laughs> there you go. All your past history there has, has come to fruition for you. That was brilliant. Right, so what's happening next for you then? What's going on in your world at the moment? Well, for me, I think, especially in the professional environment after the COVID in, in Asia Pacific, I think the, the supply chain is booming up again. So for uh, the Vietnam factory that I am leading, we are gearing up, gearing up towards uh, an expectation of delivering higher volumes, better cost savings, and be being a best-in-class manufacturing unit. So that's something that we are looking up for, to support that plan. We are, like I mentioned, we are always working on a product people development plan in sync with it. So what personally I am learning this, I, I plan to learn in 2023 is to learn more about the early product development pillar in, in world-class manufacturing. Because I feel, you know, sooner or later, you know, Vietnam will be a center point of manufacturing in Asia Pacific, not just from the cost point of view, but I think with its ability to deliver a new product with a comparable KPI of time to market. So I, I really want to develop my skills on early product development. So that's on professional side. On personal side, these days I'm reading a book by Gary Hammer, it says, uh, What Matters Now? And it's, it's a really wonderful book. It gives really uh, beautiful insights on uh, how to win, what strategies we can have, you know, in this world of changes, uh, such tough competition and continuous innovation. So what strategies can really help us? So I think it's a good book on leadership, uh, teams and motivation. I, I would recommend it. Yeah, sounds fantastic. I love books like that. You find these little gems. My bookshelf is full of them. There's some really good ones out there. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. And thank you so much for your time today. Uh, I really appreciate you giving up because the time difference as well. You're, you're in your evening and I'm in my morning. Such a strange phenomenon. It's like, what? <laughs> and the beautiful Vietnam as well. It's pouring down with rain here in the UK. Dark, cloudy, windy and rainy. Crouching heat here. It's crashing heat here. Oh, don't say that. That's just not very nice, is it? That's awful. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you, Matt, and uh, also for your time to meet me today and learning uh, about your initiative of Eversoline. And many congratulations for that. I see that the viewership is, is growing and, and the love of people, you know, for this initiative is growing as well impressively. And during this hour and so, I think I find... You know, talking to you about loss identification, people development as integral part of the lean, lean um, implementation. I think it's quite refreshing. I could bring many of the members back uh, about some topics that you touched as it's something that I value as well. So anyway, I wish you all the best for this and oh, thank you. keep posting your valuable material. We are, we are listening it and all the social media and just keep helping learners like us to digest the lean better, you know. <laughs> so thank you very much. You should be my campaign manager, Pankaj. You've got a job here. You're hired. <laughs> Thank you. Some key takeaways from today's discussion with Pankaj. I love talking about loss and waste identification and prioritisation. It's such a great topic and there's so much content that we could have spoken about within there, but it would have been like a three hour long episode and I'm sure you wouldn't want to listen to us talking for three hours. So some key highlights that I picked out was identify a KPI for the loss first. So look at the loss that you can see and look at the KPIs that are directly impacted by that loss and use them as the measure. Great advice from Pankaj there, and I really, really like that. Make it visual to help people understand. So when you're talking to the shop floor folk or the operators or the call handlers or the people that are doing the job, for them to understand the waste 
Uh, they haven't got time to be sitting there working through data. They haven't got time to be sitting there looking at spreadsheets. Make it visual. Create Pareto's. Create pie charts. Create graphs. Create something that visualizes the loss to really help people understand it. It goes a long way to winning people round and getting people on your side and getting them to take ownership of the problem as well. Absolutely brilliant. We've had it before. We've had it again. Ask questions. Ask people questions to understand the loss. Open-ended questions. Talk to me about. Tell me why. What do you think of? Get people involved. It really does work. Look for losses at the root cause, not the symptom. Pankaj referred to them as source losses. Look at the source losses. Don't look at the symptom losses. Because if you solve the source loss, the symptom loss will disappear. Don't feel the need to collect all the data right at the very beginning. There could be loads of data and that takes time and it's great to have the data and the data is important. But when you're kicking off, don't wait. It's better to get 60% now than 100% never. So start off by just going out and understanding where your losses are. Observe, get some real basic data just to help you make an informed decision. You can go back and collect more data afterwards, but initially just have a look and see what you think. Ask your people. And lastly, a really good point from Pankaj is don't remain in denial, adapt and overcome. And what we mean by that is if you're working on a project and you've put a lot of effort into this project, there's lots of people involved, but it's not delivering, it's not solving the problem that you was trying to address. Don't be afraid to stop, take account of what's going on, really look at your, your information and your data that's available to you and change approach, change the project. Don't, don't deny that the fact that that's happening. It's okay to fail. And if your senior leaders aren't allowing you that safe space to be able to fail, then you're not in a sustainable lean culture and you're not doing it the right way. You've got to be open to failure. It's the best way to learn. As Pankaj said, he's failed more times than he can remember. I have. We all have. It's what happens. It's how we learn. Right, that brings us to an end of this episode of the Ever Celine podcast. Thank you so much to Pankaj for joining us today and really getting us, helping us get under the real complexities and the perceived scariness of the cost deployment pillar and, and how we identify loss and waste. And what I think is really important there is, is what you said around cost and loss and the differences between the two. And it was also very interesting to hear about the matrices as well and how in the world-class manufacturing scenario, you have the matrices that lead you down those paths to get to your projects, which is super cool. If you like the sound of today's show and you would like to hear more, please subscribe and follow the Everseline podcast at everseline.com. We'll also find episodes that you might have missed. And if you're on the socials, search for the Everseline podcast, give us a follow and let me know of your lean efforts because I really would love to hear all about them. Thanks so much. And I'll see you on the next episode. And don't forget, Everseline, you know it makes sense. The Everseline podcast is researched, produced and recorded by Matt Sims. Visit everseline.com to find out more. Yeah.